Good morning. As we begin this new year, we're thankful for his faithfulness and for his amazing grace. We're here to sing praise to the matchless and beautiful name of Jesus. By faith, we know that all will be well with us, so his praise will ever be on our lips. So rise up now and sing and lift up your voices in praise to the matchless name of Jesus. Stronger, that king of glory, that king above all kings. 
opening for prayer. Good morning. Let's prepare our hearts before we pray. Father, we are here today to pour out our praises to you because of who you are and what you've done for us, Father. We praise you as a giver of life. Father, we praise you as a loving, gracious king, for your faithfulness, Lord, but most of all for Jesus. There is no other name under heaven who provides salvation, Lord, and we thank you, Jesus, for the cross and for the living hope that is you. Father, we come humbly before you in confession now, God, because of our lack of obedience and faith in you. Forgive us if we have stepped out of Christian character, Lord, and not shown the Christ-likeness that brings glory and honor to you, Father, Forgive us, Lord, because we may not have shown the love to others as we have extended to us. Please forgive us, Lord. You are a gracious and loving God who said that if we confess our sins, you are faithful, Lord, and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we ask for your forgiveness this morning. Father, we praise you for the blessings you have given to us. You have answered many prayers and is worthy of all the praise. You know our need as you are sovereign king. We send our prayers to you, Lord, this morning for those who cry out to be in your presence this morning but could not make it. Bless those who plead to you, Lord, for survival for them and their families. Bless them where they are. We pray for our leaders in our nation to look to you for wisdom during these times, Lord, that you may keep us safe. And we continue to pray for the wars in Israel, Gaza, and Ukraine. We pray for the solution to many who come to this country, Lord, for a better way of life. Please provide a solution to the crisis, Lord. We pray for those ministering throughout the world, Lord, for their safety and an effective witness before that day approaches. We praise you, Lord, and thank them for their faithfulness and bravery. We pray for those, our pastoral leaders, pastoral leaders in our church, Lord, that you may protect them and their families. And indeed, we pray for the message that Pastor Aaron will bring shortly, that it will influence us, influence us to apply it to our lives, Lord. So, Father, we raise up all these praises and prayers to you, knowing that you are sovereign Lord of the universe. You hear us and leave us with the confidence that all will indeed be well without soul. Bless us today, Lord. Everyone say amen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is David Chan, uh, and I'm going to give you my quick testimony, as quick as I can. Um, one can say, before I became a Christian, it was a very uh, tragic and uh, sad life. Um, at a very young age, my father passed away from lung cancer. And I got to tell you, as a child, watching your parents go through cancer, 
over a year period is very difficult. Um, so, and as an Asian fam as an Asian family, um, the man of the household is very, very keen rule. So I quickly, at a young age, became the head of the household. I had to manage a lot of stuff. And my mom, luckily she was a union job. A few years later, hurt her back at work. Uh, one of the cart crashed into her back and uh, she was hospitalized for a few months. Um, and I officially, at that point, like really took over. Uh, I was still a senior in high school, uh, but I had to take uh, side jobs and other stuff. And as I was working through college, I created a really, really successful tech consulting firm. Um, and when I graduated at uh, 97, we all know that that time was the biggest tech boom ever. Um, all the internet startups are starting. Uh, 1999 was the big apocalypse year. Everybody thought the world was gonna end January 1st, 2000. Like it was just, that was it. Uh, and I have to tell you on the tech side, that was amazing. I made so much money because everybody was in a panic. Uh, I rented an office at One World Trade Center to stock all my stuff. My business was operating out of One World Trade Center. And then 2001 hit, everything was gone. I went from a multimillionaire to zero overnight, like literally gone. Uh, and God stepped in. Um, literally like a few weeks later, one of our friends called and said, hey, uh, this girl is gone, we can't find her. Uh, like she's been missing for months. And she had a really bad reputation for falling and doing the wrong thing. So we all thought she committed suicide or something happened. We were looking for her. And uh, we got word that she was going to this uh, club or group uh, once a week. And we had no idea. We thought it was a suicide club. Because at that point, 2000 was like suicide club city. Uh, we went, and it was a crew fellowship on Wednesday. <laughs> and it was, it was a huge shocker. Um, uh, I thought it was going to be like some weird, like, you know, people going to drink Kool-Aid and die, but it was fun. Uh, people were very great. Um, the leader of the crew fellowship actually became one of the head uh, officers at crew. He's actually out in Orlando now, and he's working on the Jesus Project and Radio Jesus. So it was awesome. And for about almost a year, we developed a great relationship. And one day he was like, Dave, uh, what's wrong? Why, like, do you believe or you not believe? I was like, I believe there's a Jesus. And then he was like, so what's holding you back? I was like, I don't know. And he goes, asked a really hard question that clicked for me was, if you believe in Jesus and you believe that he's gonna bless you and you believe that he's gonna do all these great things, why are you waiting? Because the longer you wait, the less you're gonna have and less blessing you're gonna get. And if he can't keep you in the faith and he can't hold you down, nobody is going to hold you to becoming a Christian. You can just walk away at any time. So why not start now? And from that day, it has been an amazing journey. Um, 2007, I started a, a full-time job. I was doing side jobs everywhere. But I figured I need to start my life again. And literally June of 20, I don't know, 2007, I started working at AIG, and I met my wife. Uh, 2008, 
I proposed February. Um, thinking everything was gonna be great. Summer of 2008, AIG caused the largest financial downpour in the entire world. Uh, <laughs> we, were no, we had no idea whether I was gonna have a job, whether we can't get married, or can we even book a place? Uh, but it turned out to be a great blessing in disguise because nobody was getting married, everything was half the price. Uh, our wedding was 10-18-08. I mean, like, that is the best number for like a Chinese wedding ever. So, uh, fast forward uh, two more years, um, AIG has become very toxic. Um, I was literally working 24 by seven. Um, you know, there was just nothing to it and we we're expecting our first kid. Um, and literally, like, I was just thinking like, oh, I don't know what to do. I, I can't work the schedule and have a child. And I wasn't even looking for a job. And I got a phone call from the recruiter who put me into AIG and said, hey, I got an interview for you. And this has never happened to me before. I interviewed on a Monday in the same building as AIG because it was just three floors down. Wednesday, I got a job offer. And Friday, I was cleared by background check. And background check usually takes a month. So literally, within a five-day span, I got a job offer, and I had my child on the weekend. <laughs> so it was, it was amazing. Um, and then fast forward a couple more years. Um, 2013, we were expecting our third child, uh, oh, our second child, and we were living in a really small, I would say one bedroom, kind of like, it's a two bedroom, but it's really like a one bedroom that they split the unit up. Um, it was like, oh, how are we gonna do this? Uh, we, we're not, I don't get paid that much. Um, where are we gonna live, what are we gonna do? Uh, and a check came in out of the blue for a settlement, a worker's comp settlement for my mom. And this has been like 15 years later we didn't expect anything, and that was just enough to kind of pay for the closing of a place. But we haven't found a place yet. And literally, like, we, we had this, my wife is really good, I'm gonna let her explain the story. Um, she writes a whole list of stuff down and what she wants and she prays about it. And a three bedroom co-op, or a three bedroom anything in Queens is like, forget it, it's not gonna happen. Uh, literally, in a week, uh, the broker says, hey, we got a place in this co-op. And I was like, wait, one of our friends live in that co-op. And I was like, oh, it's good. So we went in there and it was great. Everything worked out. We got a co-op a month before the baby was born and two weeks before I moved in, I got a job offer at another bank, which I didn't ask for. So I went to a conference and I went to a heated debate with somebody uh, at a competing firm about how they're doing everything wrong. Uh, and then he told my information and I was expecting like nothing to happen. And then all of a sudden I got a call saying, hey, here's your job offer. I was like, yeah, but you never interviewed me. Uh, so it was, so God works in a really mysterious way. And I started a job, moved into a new place, uh, fully, almost fully renovated. Uh, and then I had a baby. And then fast forward, you know, quite a bit more years. Uh, took my wife to a Jackie Chan concert. And then a month later, we found out she's gonna have a baby. And I'm like, okay, how are we ever gonna support three kids 
and you're homeschooling, what are we gonna do? And literally a week before the kid was born, uh, I started my current job. And I went to the boss, I was like, I can't start, can I start the following year? And he was like, no, just start. Uh, you can take as much time as you off as you want. And I started in October, had the baby literally the weekend. I worked for like four days and there was the baby. And they let me take about a month off and I came back and then it was Christmas and everybody was out. So it was just me in the office and there was like no stress, no training, nothing. And it was great. Uh, so the summary of my life is just basically wherever there's something tragic that was about to happen, it was actually God preparing a blessing for me because, you know, it's, it's just amazing that as hard as I think my life is going to be, it becomes easier and God just comes in full swing. Um, just like coming to this church, we were, after COVID, we're like, oh, where are we going to go? We can't do this uh, video virtual thing anymore. The kids needed guidance and they needed to do something. And literally, I went to Google and go church flushing. First Baptist was the first one that showed up. Like, it just showed up. And as soon as I walked through the door, I don't know if Maria has, like, radar or something. Like, the door wasn't even fully open yet, and she comes running. And, you know, uh, from there, Carol took the kids, and it was just like, we didn't do anything. Like, we, the kids just got swept away. Everything was fine. And it was perfect. Like, they loved it so much that we knew that it fit every criteria that my wife's list had and the kids loved it, and we're like, okay, this is home. So God has been very good, and I look forward to what's he, what God has in store for me and for the rest of the, everyone in this church. Thank you. Good morning. How wonderful to rejoice in the blessings of the Lord. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. I'll give you just a moment just to get to that page. Chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you.
Good morning, First Baptist Church of Flushing. How are we? All right. Thank you, Zarifa. Uh, thank you, David, for, for the testimony. I love how detailed it was and, and how you remember off the top of your head. I have trouble remembering uh, how old my kids are, so that's pretty amazing. Now, uh, some time ago, there was a survey that was conducted by Psychology Today that I came across through Haddon Robinson. Now, this survey asked people to respond to some basic questions about happiness. Questions like, what is happiness? And how do you obtain it? The answer proved to be elusive. The respondents gave all manner of responses, and there was no universal agreement. Probably the most amusing response uh, that I saw was one man, when asked about his happiness, said, I don't know. I just filled out the questionnaire. I think I'm happy. Please verify. What research has found regarding happiness is that there's no direct correlation with a number of things that we generally consider essential to happiness. For instance, money is a poor indicator in determining a person's level of happiness. The poor thought more money would make them more happy. People on the lower end of the economic scale often felt the pressure of not having money. In Robinson's word, it felt like living a 31-day month on a 21-day paycheck. For them, they thought that money would solve all their problems and bring happiness. And as a result, winning the lottery was a favorite dream. But the rich reported that it made no difference. People yearn for a big house, a heated pool, and all sorts of luxury. But once they have them, they find that it's not all that. It's like buying a roller coaster only to find out you don't like the ride. Deep inside, the rich were still unhappy. Now, I love this quote by Rudyard Kipling. He says, do not pay too much attention to fame, power, or money. Someday you will meet a person who cares for none of these, and then you will know how poor you are. What a great insight. Money does not buy happiness. Geography also does not determine a person's level of happiness. The editors receive answers from every part of the country, but geography had nothing to do with happiness. Happiness can be found in the slums of Calcutta, while there's plenty of misery in the Polynesian islands. Geography doesn't determine happiness. Now, what's perhaps most surprising is that the editors found that there was no correlation even between pleasure and happiness. And when we think about it, we can kind of appreciate that. Some of us have gone to a party and had a great time, but afterwards we leave and we're out in the cold. And then all of a sudden, we feel a sense of emptiness inside. We may experience pleasures and enjoy them for a moment, but it does not equal happiness. Perhaps that's why Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount uh, with the Beatitudes, the eight blessings, or the eight happies, or the eight happies to show us what true happiness looks like. Sorry. For some reason, it's not really. Can I just, I'll go like this. <laughs> the word for blessed, in the original language is makarios. 
the Greek island of Cyprus was called the Blessed Isle because those people who lived on Cyprus never had to leave its shores in order to have all they needed to be content. They had natural resources and minerals. They had a beautiful place to live, fruit and flowers. The island was self-contained. No one had to search for the needs and wants of life. Now, in the Old Testament, being blessed had to do with approval. Uh, God blessed men and women, and they, in turn, would bless God. Now, when God blessed them, he was giving them his approval. And when they blessed God, they were praising God and, and showing their appreciation of him. As one person said, when we are blessed by God, we are, in a sense, self-contained. That is, our happiness doesn't come from circumstances or by accidents or through diligent searches. It comes, rather, because we stand approved before the creator of the universe. Now, last week, we studied the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. We saw how des uh, our desperate need for God brings us to this point where our dependence is met with God's limitless supply. The life of the Christian is the life of faith, and it's the life of continual dependence on the goodness of God. We're blessed because when we come as people who are poor in spirit, uh, we stop striving and we start trusting. It's only then that we get to experience the trustworthiness, the faithfulness of God. Now today, we're going to examine the second beatitude. And at the outset, it will seem as nonsensical as the first beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. In other words, if you think about it, Jesus is essentially saying, blessed are those who are sad. Wait, what? How can this be? Our world would prefer, blessed are those who never, ever shed a tear. After all, the implicit message of this world for centuries has been, let us eat, drink, and be married, for tomorrow we die. But yet, God's way to happiness is different, and this speaks to the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. Our world makes every effort to avoid pain, yet there's a Mid -East, Middle Eastern proverb that points out, all sunshine makes a desert. All sunshine makes a desert. So what is the essence of this beatitude? What does it mean? How do we get it? This is what we're going to explore today as we unpack this second beatitude. And I think that if we really allow this short verse to speak and to resonate in, in our souls and do its intended work, it will bring about this clarity of mind. It will bring about this purpose that will guide us to live in a way that produces a deep yearning for God, and an even deeper consolation as the Lord meets us right where we are. So let's pray now and ask God to work in us. Would you all bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we bless you. Lord, we seek your blessing alone. Your divine approval is the only approval we need. Father, soften our hearts. Make it receptive to you. Break our hearts, Lord, for the things that break yours. May distractions, it's things that might seem urgent and important but actually are not, may those things all fade into the background. Lord, please make this beatitude a reality in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now read with me Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Now, in order to understand the meaning of this verse, it may be helpful to unpack the different kinds of sorrow that we experience in life so that we'll gain a better sense of what Jesus might be talking about. Uh, for convenience sake, we're going to break it down into three kinds of sorrow, three kinds of sorrow. The first kind of sorrow that we're going to explore is worldly sorrow. It's worldly sorrow. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul speaks to the church in Corinth. He gives thanks that their sorrow has led to this uh, genuine change of heart, this genuine repentance. Now allow me to read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 9 to 11 for us. It goes, Yet I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Now, allow me to highlight verse 10 one more time. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Now, we're going to return to godly sorrow later on, but for now, I want us to zoom in on this uh, uh, worldly sorrow. What kind of sorrow would bring about death? What is it about worldly sorrow uh, that uh, brings about destruction rather than life? Well, simply put, worldly sorrow is the kind of sorrow that turns inward on itself. It only looks inward. In turning inward versus turning upwards, all that our natural selves are capable of doing is producing in us this regret, this shame, and, and self-condemnation. Now, I think all of us at, at some point in life have, ex have experienced this on a very low level when we did something embarrassing or we said something cringe, like, like when the wait staff uh, serves you your food and says to you, enjoy your meal, and you say, you too, right? Or, or, you, you ever say something dumb or, or, or cringy, and then you spend the rest of the afternoon thinking about how dumb it was to say that? I've never done that. <laughs> the Chan family is missing the embarrassment gene. One, one time, uh, CJ did something that... Uh, that we, we were all like, I don't even know what it was, but it was kind of embarrassing. And, and, and then we were busting his chops about it. And then he turns around and he says, I'm not embarrassed. And then we're like, well, you should be. Uh, but this, this kind of embarrassment, uh, this self-embarrassment is a super mild version of true worldly sorrow. True worldly sorrow is this deep, and dark sorrow. It's the sorrow of self-pity. It's the sorrow of getting caught. It's that sorrow over the consequences that sin brings. It's a sorrow that has no benefits because what it does is it condemns, it brings about a deep sense of pain and shame, but it doesn't lead us to the cure because worldly sorrow is ultimately a self-centered sorrow. As one theologian puts it, it's not sorrow because of the heinousness of sin as rebellion against God, but sorrow because of the painful 
and unwelcome consequences of sin. Self is its central point. A good way to tell if your sorrow is a godly sorrow or a worldly sorrow is what you feel sorry about. Is it feeling sorry over dishonoring the name of Jesus or grieving the Holy Spirit? Or is it rather a grief over the embarrassment you're experiencing, the pain that you're in? Or in other words, are you mainly grieving for yourself because of the situation that you've put yourself in? Now, the best example of worldly sorrow in the Bible is the end of the life of Judas. One person said it, it is said of Judas that he felt remorse for betraying Christ, that he returned the 30 pieces of silver which, by which he was bribed, and that he even openly confessed, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now at this point, Judas' actions are virtually indistinguishable from genuine repentance. He confessed his sin, he felt remorse over it, he even changed his course. But ultimately, we learned that this was not godly sorrow leading to repentance, but worldly sorrow that produced death. Now, how do we know that? Because when the chief priests and elders wouldn't take the money back, he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and then he went away, and he hanged himself. If Ju Judas was mourning over the offense that he had committed against the Son of God, if his grief was fundamentally God-centered, his response would have looked much different. He knew from walking with Christ more than three years, he could have found forgiveness. He could have found restoration in him. Judas knew that Jesus had come to die for liars and traitors like him, and that forgiveness was available to those who would abandon their sin and trust in Christ for righteousness. But that wasn't Judas's concern. His grief was self-centered. He couldn't bear the shame, the humiliation of having betrayed the Son of God. And rather than bringing that shame to the Savior who could pay for it, he sought to atone for it by killing himself. Worldly sorrow brings death. Now, there's a second kind of sorrow, and that's natural sorrow. That's natural sorrow. Natural sorrow takes the form of grief over the circumstances of life, like the sorrow over the death of loved ones, or uh, the grief we experience over sickness and different health challenges, or, or the sadness over financial setbacks, so on and so forth. This is a kind of sorrow that is very important. It's something that every person experiences. Do you, ever, do you remember that uh, Pixar uh, animated film, Inside Out? How many of you have seen it, right? What a terrific movie. We were just talking about uh, movies last night, movies that made us cry. Remember that scene uh, where, where, with Bing Bong, right? No? <laughs> okay, if you do, wow. That was a brought up. Who's cutting onions? It was so moving. Now, for those of us who haven't seen it, though, it follows the inner world of a young girl named Riley. And uh, Riley experiences this tumultuous change because her family moves from Minnesota to San Francisco. Now, the movie has Riley's internal emotions uh, personified. And at first, the dominant emotion of joy tries to just take over, make everyone, uh, everything seem happy and good, but it just doesn't work. Riley is miserable in San Francisco. No amount of good feelings can cover over that. Now, it's only through various adventures, adventures that it becomes obvious that sadness plays this crucial role in coming to accept and adjust to our new environment. 
from a psychological point of view, uh, natural sorrow clearly is an invaluable part of every uh, maturing person. We can't heal what we don't feel, and experiencing and, and acknowledging sorrow is often the first step towards healing. However, natural sorrow can be very good for us spiritually as well. Now, years ago, the late John Stott at All Souls Church in London conducted a poll in his church to find out what actually caused members of it to become Christians. He was surprised to find that for a majority of those who answered that the single greatest factor in drawing them near to Christ was this feeling of helplessness. It was this personal desperation, a, a sense of being at the end of their resources. Pain has this way of magnifying our need for the Savior. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. That's why many pastors will tell you that they prefer to conduct funerals over weddings. It sounds a bit morbid, but what they mean is that natural sorrow has this way of jolting us out of the, the normal rhythms of life. And, and, and it, it reminds us and helps us remember what is actually, what is really important. So while natural sorrow is not the same as the third kind of sorrow, the one that we're going to cover next, it can and, and very often will lead us to this third kind of sorrow. This brings us to the third and final kind of sorrow, which is godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is the deep and genuine sadness over sin. It's always accompanied by repentance and a sincere desire to become reconciled with God. It goes far beyond this, uh, just a mere regret for the circumstances of what we've done. It goes beyond shame, embarrassment that, that uh, it brings. What godly sorrow is mainly about is this profound sense of how sin is a, an offense against God. It carries with it this deep desire to set out on a new path. Godly sorrow leads to life because it becomes the catalyst for change. It leads us away from our old way of life and to seek out a new way of living, a life in Christ. This is the kind of sorrow and mourning that Jesus speaks of in the second beatitude when he says, blessed are those who mourn. It is those who mourn over sin who begin to see life, who begin to see this world, who begin to see all of creation through God's eyes. They begin to see this world as beautiful, but marred by sin, as precious, yet in need of redemption. Now let's drill down some more on godly sorrow as we explore what we're to mourn over. Now in John uh, chapter 11, verse 35, in what is the shortest verse in the entire Bible, John, the gospel writer, records that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. At the tomb of the recently deceased Lazarus, in the presence of Mary, Martha, and a whole host of different mourners who had gathered, Jesus wept. The question is, why did Jesus weep? One thing we know for certain that Jesus did not weep at the tomb of Lazarus is that he didn't weep for the same reason that Mary and Martha and the mourners' presence were weeping. They were weeping because they thought that they had seen the last of Lazarus, that Lazarus' death was the final goodbye on this side of eternity. They thought that they'll never see him again. However, 
Jesus, the Son of God, arrived in Bethany knowing that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. So he wasn't weeping over that. He knew that Lazarus was going to live again. So why was Jesus weeping? The answer? While Jesus wasn't weeping over Lazarus' death, he was mourning over the plight of the world that had been ravaged by sin. Death wasn't the way that things were supposed to be. Death only became a reality in our world when sin entered into the world. A part of what it means to be blessed as those who mourn is to mourn over the plight of our world as it has been ravaged by sin. As people who walk in the way of Jesus, we likewise mourn over the fallenness. We mourn over the evil of our world. And then we live to push back the darkness. There's a man named Lord Shaftesbury. He was one of the great Christian social reformers in the 19th century in England. Now his life's work tremendously improved the welfare of women and children as he advocated for safer working conditions and, and age restrictions. He was instrumental in taking children out of working in the mines. He was a proponent and an advocate uh, for child safety. Now, Jim Boyce tells a story about how it all began when Shaftesbury's conscience was awakened. When he was a young boy growing up in a Christian home, uh, one day he came across this funeral procession of a poor man. The man had just died and his body had been just placed in a shoddy, unembellished, handmade coffin. Now, the coffin was uh, being pulled uh, through the streets by a hand-drawn cart. The worst part was that uh, the men who uh, pulled the cart and, and pulled the coffin were drunk, and the whole, the whole affair was a mess. They sang lewd songs. They told stories not fit for respectable company. And as they made their way up the hill towards the cemetery, the grave site, the coffin slid off the cart, and the body fell out. Now the drunken men found it hilarious, while the other onlookers found it horrifying. To Shaftesbury, though, it caused him to grieve deeply because it, it seemed an evil that called for the deepest sorrow. He said to himself, when I grow up, I am going to use my life to see that such things will not happen. And he did. And he did. He devoted himself to the good of humanity in the name of Jesus. Now, when we mourn over the evil in our world, we gain this deep awareness for the wrongs in our world, and, and it moves us into action. Uh, one of my favorite uh, missionaries, international workers, is a man named Eric Yang. He was a mechanic in Boston. We were in the same church while I was uh, going to seminary in, in Boston. Now, Eric sold his business in order to bring the gospel to the Golden Triangle region. He served in this place called uh, the Wa Sovereign Nation in Southeast Asia. And when he arrived, he found that the people there were impoverished. They had little education and few opportunities for advancement. Now, he was saddened to see the people in such a desperate state. He mourned over their circumstances. Now, if you know anything about the Golden Triangle, you'll probably know it as a place that's riddled with uh, drugs and, and, and drug trafficking. And what he found was that much of the land in the Golden Triangle in the Wa Sovereign Nation was used to grow poppies, which were then sold to the drug traffickers. Now, you would think that the people would be getting rich off of the drug money, but no, 
the drug traffickers didn't need to pay a lot for the poppy. And so the people remained poor. And when he arrived, Eric brought the gospel in this holistic manner. Not only did he share Christ with the people, but he committed himself to to their advancement. He recruited others to work uh, uh, on the the literacy uh, of the people in education. But the best part, my favorite part, was how he partnered with others to teach the Wa people a new trade. Instead of growing poppies, he taught them how to grow tea leaves. Being such a fertile region, the tea leaves they produced sold for many times over what they were getting from being part of the drug trade. And so the mourning over the evil in that land led to the complete transformation of a community as a people turned themselves over to Christ. The gospel cares deeply about alleviating the suffering of people. Now, mourning over sin causes us to care when we see the plight of the world ravaged by sin. Mourning over sin also causes us to grieve deeply over our own sin. Blessed are those who mourn is the flip side of blessed um, are those who are poor in spirit. Because it's when we recognize our spiritual poverty, we begin to feel the weight of our own sin. It's when we feel the weight of our own sin that we become heartbroken, that we start to mourn over our sin. And we realize this is not a small mistake that we made, but we have, when we have sinned against the Almighty God. One person noted that there is a big difference between a mistake and a sin. A mistake is a goof-up, an error, a miscalculation. You regret a mistake. You apologize for a mistake. You even try to make amends for a mistake. But you don't mourn a mistake. What you mourn is sin, a, fu- uh, um, a fundamental flaw in our character that compels us to think or say or do the wrong thing, a skew in our spirit that consistently takes us in the wrong direction. We were made to be generous, but we tend towards greed. We were designed to treasure our sexuality. Instead, we trash it. We were wired to worship God. Instead, we worship cars, sports, or nature, or ourselves. We're not mistakers. We're sinners. Now, to mourn over our sin is an invitation to feel the weight of our own sin, that the brokenness that, that it brings, and to flee to Christ. It is to be truly sorry for our sin and to turn away from it in an act of repentance. It's a move that simultaneously runs from sin and runs straight towards God. In the famous parable of the prodigal son, it took the younger son losing everything that he had in order to come to his senses. His sorrow over his plight, the mess that he had made, was the catalyst to turn around. But it was only when he came within his father's line of sight and received his father's embrace that he actually experienced consolation, comfort. Godly sorrow, that is mourning, as Jesus speaks of in our beatitude, does not lead to despair. Instead, it brings us hope because as we turn to God, God himself grants us comfort through forgiveness, through reconciliation, and through restoration. So this brings us to our final point. Just how do we cultivate this? How do we cultivate a tender heart? Now, allow me to suggest uh, two practical ways. First, practice confession. Practice confession. To cultivate godly sorrow and a tender conscience, there needs to be some sort of regular self-examination 
confession, through prayer. It's only then that we gain a deep awareness of who we are and why we need God's grace. It's something between you and God. Now, it's humbling because when we really take time to confess and to come clean before God, all the layers of our carefully curated selves come off. And then we come only as people who are desperate, people in need of a savior. But this is the true way to life. I love, I always love this quote. It goes, religion says, I messed up, dad's going to kill me. But the gospel says, I messed up, I need to call dad. When we are truly in Christ, we learn not to run away from the father, but to run towards our father in heaven when we've gotten ourselves into trouble. When we think about confession, it's not a dead ritual that we practice, but a living, an honest conversation with our Father in heaven. In light of God's perfection, we, sin, we see sin for what it is. We acknowledge the areas where we've fallen short. We don't try to speed through it, but rather we take the time examining our hearts, identifying specific sins, areas that need God's healing touch. Now, honesty and sincerity are key here. It's not about going through the motions. It's about genuine repentance. Your confession is asking for forgiveness, coupled with this desire, this resolve to turn away from sin. And what you're going to find is that as you confess and as you come clean before God, you leave actually feeling lighter. You leave with hope because God has met you and he has lifted you up. In the words of Isaiah, when we confess, God gives us a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So, practice confession. Secondly and lastly, in order to cultivate a tender heart, take up and read. Take up and read. Saturate yourselves in the scriptures. Allow the scriptures to shape you in understanding righteousness, and, and to cultivate in you a humble heart. When you take up and read, uh, the word of God acts as this mirror. It shows us who we really are. This role of a mirror has this profound effect. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but uh, at many self-service checkout stations, at supermarkets, targets, other big boxes, companies started doing something unique to deter potential shoplifters. They started putting up mirrors at the self-checkout. Have you ever noticed it? No? Still, still here, guys? Just kidding. All right. So at first, people thought that they were put there to ensure shoppers look good as they're checking out. But instead, they're actually there to, take, uh, to make the, the would-be shoplifters feel guilty. It might sound ineffective because no one's really there to closely watch their actions. But what the mirrors do is they're, they're psychologically proven to make people feel guilty. According to a study in the journal, uh, Letters on Behavioral Evolutionary Science, people who are self in a self-aware situation, such as in front of a mirror, are less likely to engage in anti-normative behavior, like stealing or cheating, than those who are not. The study noted that when participants were subjected to mirrors, their private Self-awareness was activated. It influenced decision-making despite the lack of social cues. And the results suggest that socially desirable behavior is influenced by mirrors. Now, it's true. A person can look into a man-made mirror and soon forget 
what they've seen, go ahead with their sinful plans. However, however, when we look into the perfect law of God, we see a true and undistorted image of ourselves. God designed this so that our actions will be brought into alignment with his will, so that we'll do what's pleasing to him. So as we take up and read, we read not only for information, we read for transformation. As we read, we read with hearts inclined towards him, and he meets us, he's, he molds us bit by bit, so we look more and more like his son. Now, the, for those of us who, who don't have any kind of Bible reading plan, it's not too late to read along with our church, to go through the Bible in one year plan. Download the app, press play if you want to listen to it. It even speaks in a pleasing British accent. The important thing is simply that you take up and read and allow God's word to transform you. Now, we're going to close in prayer now, but um, as we bow our heads, I'd like us to do something, to just spend a couple of moments uh, with you and the Lord. No one else is listening. At this time, I'd like you to turn to him, to confess your sins before him, seeing it for what it is. And after a moment, I'll close this off. Lord, we confess that so often when we take a deep, long look at ourselves, we don't really like what we see. We recognize that there are parts of us that are not of you, that we can be selfish, that we can be greedy, that we are prone to wander. We ask for your forgiveness. We thank you for the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just, and you will purify us of our sins, and uh, you will forgive us of our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. And so we, we bring our sins before you, knowing that in Christ, he has already nailed it to the cross, that we are forgiven and that we are yours. So Father, we mourn, knowing that as we mourn, we will be comforted. Lord, here's our lives. Please take it and use it for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Won't you please stand and sing this song of response, Ever Be.
Good afternoon, I have to check time. Um, good afternoon, First Baptist. Welcome, one and all. Um, we, uh, for those who are with us in person, for those who are online, we do hope that you have enjoyed our worship services this Sunday. And I'd like to give a special acknowledgement to anyone who is with us for the first time in person. If you can raise your hand, our ushers would like to give you a connect card. Um, so please um, take that card, complete it. And if you go outside to our visitor center, we have a special gift for you. So please do take advantage of that. Um, so now First Baptist, rise and greet your neighbor and share with us your most memorable food. So, my most memorable food, I have to share this. If you are ever in New Orleans, please take the opportunity to go to Drago's. That's dragon without the end, not to be confused with Draco, okay? <laughs> Drago's, right? And they have the very best charbroiled oysters that you're ever gonna taste. I went there many years ago and I still remember these oysters. <laughs> and actually the people who were with me on the trip, we always see each other and we talk about those oysters. So definitely that's my most memorable food. So now some highlights from the announcements. Um, we will be offering a free job search course. And this is for all job seekers, 18 and older, all adults are welcome, whether you are entry level, mid-career, Retiree, want a gig? Um, you're welcome to come. And that course will start next Sunday, um, and it will go through to February 25th. It's only five Sundays, 1.30 to 3.30 p.m., and it will be right here in the church. There are more details in the insert, and you can actually um, register. There's a scan to register, and you will get more information about the course and any course materials. Also, we will have a fellowship potluck lunch, and that will be on January 20th, this coming Saturday, 5.30 to 8.30. And so we are inviting everyone to come for a wonderful evening and bring your most memorable food. No, I will not be bringing the oysters from NOLA. <laughs> um, however, um, you can see uh, the RSVP. There's an URL for you to register to RSVP and also to let us know what you want to bring. Now, if your most memorable food is Popeye's fried chicken, I'm not mad at you. Um, feel free to come, bring yourself and your bucket of fried chicken. We will welcome you, okay? So takeout is quite all right. 
So it doesn't have to be a home-cooked meal. Um, it could be whatever you want to contribute and share with the group. Also, we will be having our monthly prayer meeting for the English congregation on Saturday, January 27th, and that will be from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. in the College and Career Room in the North Building. Our young adult group uh, for college age and up will meet on second and fourth Sundays immediately after service in this building on the third floor, room 304. And we will have our Monday noon prayer on Zoom. And we pray and we, well, it won't be this Monday, right? <laughs> this Monday is MLK Day, so the offices are closed. However, join us any other Monday. Um, if you would like to contribute to the beautification of our worship space, um, you can do so for $25 a week. You are free to sign up for as many weeks as you would like with Angela Lee. She's somewhere around here with a clipboard. Um, also, if, and Pastor Aaron mentioned this, if one of your resolutions was to read more of the Bible, um, then we are, have something for you. We are journeying together through the Bible in one year. Um, there is an app that you can download and that is listed in the bulletin. Also the plan, as I found out, is also available on version. So if you are a version user, me, um, you can also get the, the plan on version, so you don't have to download another app. Um, if you are old fashioned and you don't like to deal with any kind of apps and you just wanna pick up a Bible and read it, we do have paper reading plans available, limited amount. So, you know, if you want one, please see the usher in the front um, and you can journey with us um, through the Bible for this year. All other announcements can be found in the bulletin. Now I'd like to invite our ushers forward as we pray for the offering. God and Father of all, we praise you for your thoughtful provisions. It's you, O oh Lord, who hears us in the midnight hour and lovingly responds to us with grace, compassion, and righteousness. You deliver our souls from death, our feet from stumbling, and our eyes from tears. Accept our tithes and offering as a gift of worship to you, an expression of our heartfelt gratitude and love. Multiply what we give for the effective growth of your kingdom here in our land. Lord, bless us and keep us. Make your face shine upon us and give us peace. In the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray and all God's people say, amen. to find 
the words louder than I'll sing your praise. And I will only sing your praise. And take this mountain weight. And take these ocean tears and hold me through the trials and come like hope again and even when the fight seems lost I'll praise you and even when it hurts like hell I'll praise you and even when it makes no sense to sing louder than I'll sing your praise and and I will only sing your praise and I will only sing your praise Joel, rise for the benediction. Receive the benediction. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I praise in the valley. Praise on my 
Have a good afternoon. Keep walking with the King.